welcome to the Joint Trauma System Clinical Practice Guideline Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor, with the Joint Trauma System. On this episode, we are discussing the hyperkalemia and dialysis in the deployed setting, CPG, with Lieutenant Colonel Ian J. Stewart. Lieutenant Colonel Stewart is currently serving as an Associate Professor of Medicine at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences and is a nephrologist at David Grant United States Air Force Medical Center. We're grateful to have him as the subject matter expert to discuss the CPG with us today. Thanks for joining us today, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. To begin our discussion, would you mind explaining what the primary causes of acute kidney injury and hyperkalemia are in the deployed setting? So hyperkalemia um, is a literally elevated potassium in the blood. Uh, and in the setting of trauma, that's caused primarily by cell breakdown. So the majority of potassium in your body is stored inside the cells. Uh, and it's when it uh, is released into circulation that can become a problem. So with trauma, you have that cell breakdown and subsequent release of potassium into the bloodstream. Uh, normally, the kidneys uh, are able to compensate and they can get rid of that potassium. Uh, but in the setting of acute kidney injury or AKI, um, that potassium uh, can build up because the kidneys aren't able to get rid of it. Uh, risk factors for acute kidney injury uh, and combat casualties include injury severity. Uh, so the more severely injured a patient is, the more likely they are to develop uh, AKI, uh, hypotension and duration of hypotension, uh, prolonged evacuation, uh, and finally under resuscitation. Uh, there are also some other injury types and complications uh, that can worsen um, hyperkalemia. And those include things like ischemia, reperfusion injury, uh, and rhabdo, uh, both of which can cause AKI and elevated potassium. Are there any particular injuries that tend to present at the same time as AKI or hyperkalemia? I, I think uh, rhabdomyolysis is a good example of that. So what that uh, rhabdomyolysis is literally a skeletal muscle breakdown. And you get a couple things with that. Uh, we, all, we have the release of potassium because most, actually most potassium in the body is stored in skeletal muscle. You also have a release of myoglobin. And myoglobin is toxic to the kidneys uh, and can precipitate acute kidney injury. So in the CPG, it states that in recent conflicts, casualties have been able to be transported to facilities that can offer renal replacement therapies. So what experiences have brought about the need for this CPG to prepare healthcare providers to treat hyperkalemia prior to transport? So I think that's for the most part. So in the setting of rapid evacuation, we can usually get these patients out to a higher echelon of care, be it a roll four, roll five, uh, before uh, they develop uh, acute kidney injury and hyperkalemia. And now the acute kidney injury actually usually happens early, like within the first day or two. Um, however, the complications uh, of the, that AKI as it progresses usually are delayed. So that's more in a three to four day time frame. And the recent conflicts, for the most part, that has occurred further up the evacuation chain. However, there were certainly some patients that required uh, acute kidney injury in theater. Um, and that was treated uh, with means that were, were not um, like a standard treatment. So what you'd have is you'd have an intensivist or you'd have a nephrologist, they have a patient in front of them with hyperkalemia, and they would improvise some amount of treatment for that, uh, some renal replacement therapy. Um, now, because that's the less than ideal scenario, improvising something, in 2010, a next stage system one, which is a very simple analysis ma machine, uh, was deployed to Craig Joint Theater Hospital uh, in uh, Barkham Airfield, Afghanistan. And it's been used periodically since uh, by, by a wide variety of nephrologists, intensivists, uh, surgeons, and general internists. Now, the one thing I would like to point out is that this is the current um, uh, 
a paradigm by which we do this. So right now, the way we're fighting those wars and fixed facilities that are fairly well supplied uh, with rapid evacuation. However, that may not be the case in future scenarios where you have prolonged field care or A2AD environments. In those scenarios, you might not be able to get those patients out to roll four or roll five uh, in time, and they may develop AKI with uh, hyperkalemia downrange. Uh, furthermore, uh, those scenarios are both associated uh, with a lot of the risk factors that we talked about for AKI. So prolonged hypotension, because you're not gonna be able to resuscitate people, prolonged evacuation, et cetera. So it's possible that uh, the uh, risk of acute kidney injury will increase in those scenarios as well. Okay, so right now it's not something that we're so concerned about because we've had opportunities to treat all of this in appropriate facilities, but this CPG is helping prepare for an opportunity that right now we're not faced with in general, but are expecting to see in the future. Yeah, but I would say, you know, most patients, but not all. So there are definitely some that are treated downrange uh, uh, with uh, renal replacement therapy. Um, so I think it is useful in the now in that term, uh, but it is also useful in, in the long term as, as we look um, at future uh, combat scenarios uh, and how those might be different uh, than the wars we've been fighting for the last uh, decade plus. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. So what puts a casualty at risk for acute kidney injury or hyperkalemia? So the risk factors for acute kidney injury uh, in the recent conflicts, the work that we've done uh, has been injury severity, uh, which we've quantified by the ISS or the injury severity score, uh, and also hypotension or, or low blood pressure uh, after initial injury. Uh, there's also been work done in prior conflicts uh, by uh, Paul Tashan in the Korean War. Uh, he was actually retired as a colonel uh, and worked at the ISR for a time. Uh, but they demonstrated uh, that hypotension, the duration of hypotension, uh, prolonged evacuation and under-resuscitation uh, were also all risk factors uh, for acute kidney injury. Um, and the final thing that I'll mention, uh, like, we, like we talked about before, uh, was ischemia reperfusion injury and subsequent rhabdomyolysis. Uh, both those can cause acute kidney injury and hyperkalemia. As we start to look at the treatment that is prescribed in the CPG, it recommends hourly monitoring of urine output, serum creatinine, and serum potassium. Does this recommendation differ from common monitoring practices of casualties with AKI? No, this is the standard of care, uh, basically, no matter where you'd be. Um, I'd like to point out the comma, though, in the urine output, after urine output. So you monitor the urine output hourly, and it'd be difficult to monitor serum creatinine and potassium hourly. That'd be something you did on a Q4 to 6-hour basis. At what point should a patient that's presenting with AKI be transported to a higher role of care? So I think this is a slightly different question that we've been talking about uh, with the severe AKI. So it's severe AKI that's going to put you at risk for uh, hyperkalemia and need renal replacement therapy. Um, but acute kidney injury in general uh, puts someone at a higher risk for a wide variety of poor outcomes. So in the work that we've done, we've demonstrated that acute kidney injury occurs in 12.5% of combat casualties. The vast majority of these do not require renal replacement therapy. Uh, however, these patients are at a much higher risk of mortality compared to patients without acute kidney injury. So patients with acute kidney injury in that series, uh, the mortality rate was 13.1%, and patients without acute kidney injury had a mortality rate of 1.5%. So clearly, patients with acute kidney injury, even if they don't need renal placement therapy, are very sick, resource-intensive patients, and they should be prioritized for evacuation. Wow, that's a really staggering statistic. 
It's it, and the thing to to understand is that again, this is separate than the severe AKI that can require dialysis, uh, but it is highly associated with mortality. Um, the causative role we're not entirely certain of, so we don't really know you know what direction that causality arrow is going. Um, is it AKI itself um, that is directly causing the subsequent mortality of these patients, or are patients that are are dying do they happen to develop AKI along the way? Um, I suspect it's probably a little bit of both. Um, but that's going to take much more work uh, to, to tease out. What kind of research is going on right now to try to figure that out? So I've uh, I've, I've uh, worked with uh, data from DODTR uh, fairly extensively uh, to, to look at this topic, um, and that's the the paper that I sent you and, and the, the statistics that I'm quoting here. Uh, but again, that those are kind of retrospective studies, and, and those those show association, but but can't do causation. So the, the real causation studies and to really tease out, um, you know, how AKI either does or does not directly affect subsequent mortality risk, that's going to need large randomized control trials uh, and, well, translational research and then large randomized control trials uh, to demonstrate. Now let's talk about some of the treatment that patients should be initially receiving. What are the initial treatment steps for a casualty with hyperkalemia? I think the first thing that uh, we need to think about is preventing it in the first place. Um, so it's much easier to prevent something than, than to treat it once it occurs. And uh, for AKI and hyperkalemia, the prevention steps are kind of covered in other guidelines and other initiatives, but they are basically rapid evacuation, uh, damage control resuscitation, and damage control surgery. Uh, however, once a patient has a, a acute kidney injury with subsequent hyperkalemia, uh, the first step should be medical measures. Um, so these are things like calcium uh, to stabilize uh, the my, uh, myocardial membranes, uh, cell shifting uh, like insulin and glucose, and finally a means to take it out of the body, uh, be it uh, Lasix or furosemide, uh, KXLate uh, or Veltasa, uh, bo- both of which, the latter two of which are kind of potassium binding resins uh, that are taken orally. Um, if these medical measures fail, uh, that's when you need uh, to do renal placement therapy uh, either with the next stage system one uh, or peritoneal dialysis as detailed in the CPG. So then, so patients that don't respond to the initial treatment for AKI and trying to prevent hyperkalemia from setting in, how are these patients treated at the next echelon of care? Yeah, these are the ones that are going to need that renal replacement therapy. Um, and, and the methods for renal replacement therapy available are going to differ somewhat based on the echelon of care. Um, so certainly role three uh, in Afghanistan, Bagram, you, you have a next stage system one. Uh, there are also dialysis machines available, uh, those same machines at uh, launch tool. Uh, and, and once patients get back stateside to a role five, um, there are a variety of other machines available to include Fresenius, uh, Prismaflex, uh, and next stage system ones are also available. Um, so that is somewhat dependent on the location uh, and the methods available for replacement therapy. I will, I will mention, too, that once you have those machines available, like the Roll 4, Roll 5, uh, I probably would not do acute peritoneal dialysis. Um, it'd be much better uh, to do um, uh, renal placement therapy using one of those machines. In the CPG, the NX Stage System 1 is the one particular machine that is recommended to treat hyperkalemia. What makes the NX Stage System 1 the preferred tool to treat hyperkalemia? So as I mentioned, there are a variety of machines available uh, to do renal replacement therapy. Uh, there's the Next Stage System 1, uh, the Prismaflex, uh, the Fresenius. Uh, but the Next Stage uh, System 1 is really the ideal one uh, to be used downrange. And the reasons are, are, are a few fold. Uh, 
Uh, firstly, it's, it's very small, so it's compact. Of the three things that I've mentioned, it's the smallest. Uh, secondly, uh, it's the most simple uh, to set up uh, and to use. Um, and lastly, it uses a, um, a balance chamber uh, to tightly regulate and balance the replacement fluid and, and the, uh, the ultrafiltrate. So basically what's happening when you're doing CVVH, continuous vena, uh, venous hemodialysis, uh, CVVHD, uh, continuous vena venous uh, hemodialysis, which are all different types of renal replacement therapy, you're taking out some amount of fluid from the body and you're giving an equivalent amount of fluid to the body back. So as you can imagine, you, those two things need to be exactly even. Otherwise, you're going to get into some problems. And the next stage system one's, you know, again, biggest advantage, I think, is that it does so with a balance chamber. Other uh, uh, products use things like scales, so they'll weigh uh, how much is coming out and how much is going in. Um, and as you can imagine, that's going to be very problematic um, uh, in any kind of mode of transport. So for those three reasons, I think the next stage system one is the best option uh, downrange. Now, in the Roll 5 environment, so back in the United States, I think there's no evidence to say that one is better than any other. I think they're all equivalent, uh, but strictly based on operational needs, uh, the next stage system one uh, is ideal uh, uh, for uh, the Roll 3 environment. And that makes sense since the CPGs are all geared towards working in an austere environment. Something that that is so compact is great. Exactly. So are there any special considerations when using the system one to treat hyperkalemia that differ from the machine's recommended usage? No, this is pretty much the standard of care um, and the CPG details for the most part, that standard of care, that which would be used uh, if you were stateside. Okay. And it sounds like that machine also pretty much walks you through using it from what I've read. It does. So when you turn it on, um, there's a, there's a screen and it's, it's basically windows based and it goes through um, an acronym called SIMPLE, and S is setup. And there's a little checkbox next to each step in that process, and a, uh, the little thing that you can push that will show you a picture of what they're talking about. So, you know, I, I know nephrologists who had experience with other machines, but not this specific one, uh, that were deployed to Craig Joint Theater Hospital. Um, and even though they didn't have any experience on the machine, the machine was able to walk them through the setup and they were able to safely provide uh, renal replacement therapy. So let's talk a little bit about the things that the machine won't do for us, in particular the catheter and its placement. What considerations need to be made when placing the catheter? So the optimal place to put a dialysis catheter is in the, uh, the right IJ, uh, the right internal jugular vein. Um, the second choice uh, is the femoral vein, and the third choice uh, is the left internal jugular. Um, the sizes would be a little bit different. So you would put a 15 centimeter catheter in the right IJ, and preferably a 24, 25 centimeter catheter into the femoral vein, and a 20 centimeter catheter into the left IJ. But the reason that order exists is that that's the order in which you get the best flows. So in order to do renal replacement therapy, you need to move a large volume of blood very quickly in a circuit. Um, and if that tubing is kinked or has any issues with flow, then it's going to really limit the, your ability to do uh, renal replacement therapy. And that's why those recommendations exist in terms of the order of preference, is, is that the right IJ gets the best flow, the left IJ gets the worst flow, and the femoral is somewhere in between. Now, one concern that's often raised is that the femoral uh, vein uh, catheters in that location have been associated with an increased risk for infection. Um, 
I will tell you that in the nephrology literature specifically, uh, when we have looked at that, we have not seen the femoral, uh, femoral access be associated with increased risk of infection unless a patient is obese. Um, in that case, if a patient is obese, it is associated with increased risk of infection or line infection. However, in our combat casualty population, you know, not, obviously not many of those patients, if any of them, uh, are obese. I don't really think it's applicable. The CPG then goes on to talk about replacement fluids, specifically commercially available fluids. Would you mind addressing which fluids are recommended and why? So there are several that are available, um, and the biggest difference uh, between them are the potassium concentration um, and the calcium concentration. Now we'll start with the, the calcium because I think it's a little bit easier. Downrange, we only have uh, the calcium-containing solutions. Uh, the, the solutions without calcium are meant to be used with citrate anticoagulation, which is just simply, it's just too hard. Uh, it's just too complex to be used in, in uh, for environment. Um, so we're, we're taking those fluids off the table. Um, the other fluids that they have, they have a zero uh, potassium, a two potassium, and a four potassium. Um, my understanding that with what's available downrange, they have a zero and a four potassium currently. If someone is very hyperkalemic, um, you know, potassium is really high, you want, you want to clear that relatively quickly. And that can be done with the zero potassium. Um, or alternatively, you could hang a four and a zero to kind of even out to a two. Uh, but once you have that potassium in range into a safe range, that's when you want to switch over to the four potassium containing fluid. When commercial fluids aren't available, what other options exist? So you can improvise uh, fluids. Um, if you look in the CPG, we do something similar for uh, peritoneal dialysis fluids or PD fluids. And you can go through a similar exercise uh, to get replacement fluids for the, the next stage. Um, we're actually working on some recipes uh, right now um, that we'll incorporate into future versions of the CPG. How should the replacement fluid rate be determined? For the sake of simplicity in the CPG, we recommend starting uh, at three uh, liters per hour uh, of replacement fluid rate. Uh, however, there are some patients, you know, with ongoing, you know, damage uh, to their cells that are releasing a lot of potassium or they're catabolic and again, releasing a lot of potassium. Uh, and so if the potassium does not get better when you put them on that three liters, you're going to need to increase it. Uh, the one patient uh, that I took care of when I was deployed, I put it up as high as it would go, which was 8.4 liters per hour. Uh, once the potassium is controlled, I think it's important that you try to re, uh, maintain your fluid supply. Now, obviously, this is something that needs to be restocked. So then it should be decreased uh, to 25 cc's per kilogram uh, per hour. So, for example, if you had a 70 kilogram person, uh, that would be uh, 1.75 uh, liters per hour. The CPG lists a few different rates for replacement fluid. How do you determine what rate is appropriate to use for each patient? So the, the replacement fluid rate, you know, we recommend starting at, at three liters per hour. Um, but again, that can, if they're, if that's not working and their potassium's not coming down or it's going up, you can increase that uh, up to 8.4 uh, liters per hour. Uh, conversely, once you get them controlled, you know, we want to save these supplies so you can go down to the 25 uh, cc's per kilogram per hour, um, which is the, the standard of care for acute kidney injuries. So that's why we chose that number. Okay. Would you mind addressing what ultrafiltration is? So the ultrafiltration rate is a little bit different than the replacement fluid rate. So, you know, uh, the ultrafiltration rate is basically what we're removing from the patient. Uh, 
Um, so in, in the analogy of the glass, uh, you know, some patients, when they have acute kidney injury, they can get way too much fluid on their body. So if we go back to the analogy of the glass, we can take some of those thimblefuls and just dump them and not replace them. So we can set that in uh, with the orders to say, hey, you know, we want to remove 100 cc's, you know, per hour or 50 cc's per hour uh, because this patient has way too much fluid on their body. So they're grossly edematous, they have pulmonary edema. We need to take some of this fluid off in order to stabilize the patient. Um, initially in combat casualties, for the most part, that's not, that's not the issue. Most patients uh, get started on uh, replacement therapy for hyperkalemia, not because of that high volume. Uh, furthermore, they're going to be really sick. So they're gonna, they may be on pressors, uh, they may be hypotensive. Uh, so you may want to be gentle uh, with that uh, ultrafiltration rate. Indeed, we basically recommend not taking off any ultrafiltration uh, uh, initially. You've already gone over the treatment processes for using the next stage system one. Are there main differences between using that system and acute PD? So the, so the, the next stage system one, we're basically, we're, we're directly accessing the blood. In peritoneal dialysis, all we're doing is putting fluid in the abdomen. Um, so that has a couple couple of uh, consequences. Some are good, some are bad. Uh, so the next stage is because we're directly accessing the blood, uh, it's, it's much more efficient. So we can remove potassium uh, much more quickly. But on the negative side, it requires specialized equipment. So you need that machine. Uh, you need a power supply. It has to be plugged in. Um, and it's only available at the Craig Joint Theater Hospital, like we mentioned. Now, QPD, you know, on the flip side of that, um, it, you know, it may be less efficient uh, than the next stage. Uh, however, it can be improvised pretty much anywhere, um, and it does not require power. Um, so there are some advantages to it. Um, in the, the acute PD that has been done uh, previously uh, downrange, this is another thing that some nephrologists and intensivists would do uh, before the, the next stage was introduced. Um, it's fairly decent at controlling potassium, which is good because that's initially the most important thing. However, these patients have a tendency to be highly catabolic, uh, so it's, it doesn't really control what we call uremia or azotemia, uh, which is a buildup of uh, urea and nitrogenous uh, waste products uh, in the bloodstream. Regarding performance improvement monitoring, what are the key things that need to be monitored and reported? Um, I think uh, in, in terms of performance improvement monitoring, I think the biggest thing that we need to track are one, um, the incidence of acute kidney injury and the severity of it. So as we talked about, you know, the less severe forms don't require renal placement therapy, but they are associated with mortality. Uh, the second thing we need to track uh, would be the, the potassium levels themselves. So are, are, how many patients are getting hyperkalemic? You know, uh, what are the risk factors for that? Are, are clinicians recognizing? Which I think for the most part, clinicians do. Um, so a doctor, any doctor is going to recognize, oh, that potassium's high and, and realize that's going to be a problem. Um, are, are, are people starting with medical management? Are they going directly to renal placement therapy? Um, those are all things that we should track um, and have an understanding of. Now, as we wrap up, you mentioned the appendices of the CPG a few times throughout our discussion. Would you mind taking a second to explain what we can find in the appendices? Oh, sure. So Appendix A is the, is the kind of initial medical management uh, for hyperkalemia. And it's split into the three steps that we mentioned. Uh, so the first step, you know, if someone's hyperkalemic and they have uh, EKG changes, you want to stabilize the myocyte membrane electrical activity, and that can be done with calcium. The second step is to shift potassium from that extracellular fluid space to the intracellular fluid space. 
And that can be done with insulin and glucose, uh, albuterol, uh, and to a lesser extent, uh, sodium bicarbonate. Uh, the last step is to remove potassium from the body, and that can be done with the intestinal potassium binders uh, or a diuretic uh, like furosemide. Uh, appendix B is the recommended replacement, uh, uh, renal replacement therapy prescription uh, for the next stage system one. Uh, so the first thing is mode. So we recommend CVVH, which stands for continuous venovenous humifiltration. And the reason for that is it's, that's how it comes out of the box. So if you set it up straight out of the box, it's going to be in CVVH mode. Um, there is some advantage to switching to CVVHD uh, because it will be slightly more efficient in terms of the fluid uh, that it's using. Uh, however, we only recommend that uh, if the clinician and the support personnel are familiar with the machine. Second thing is the blood flow rate, which we range from 200 to 400 cc's per minute. Uh, the replacement fluid type, and again, because these patients are going to be profoundly hyperkalemic, uh, we recommend starting with the 0K. Uh, alternatively, as we talked about, you could do a 2K by, by, edit, by hanging a 0 and a 4K bag. Uh, the replacement fluid rate, which is 3 liters per hour, uh, and the ultrafiltration rate, uh, which we initially recommend setting at 0. Uh, appendix C, this is the, uh, the improvised solutions for peritoneal dialysis. Basically, what these things are are kind of recipes for how you would make uh, improvised PD fluids. So you can start off with uh, half normal saline, add some bicarbs and dextrose and some saline uh, in different proportions, and you can come up uh, with different um, uh, uh, peritoneal fluids. Now, these and a slight variation of these, like we talked about, um, could be used to improvise uh, renal, uh, renal placement therapy fluids, the replacement fluids. Um, or alternatively, you know, we can even just use something like LR um, or uh, plasma light. Well, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to share all of your knowledge with us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. This concludes this episode of the Clinical Practice Guideline Podcast. Stay up to date with CPG developments by subscribing through your podcast app or check back on the website. You can always find the latest tactical and surgical combat casualty care information, knowledge tools, and current guidelines at www.deployedmedicine.com. You can also download the Deployed Medicine mobile app to your phone or tablet. With the app, you can access the latest combat casualty care content, JTS clinical practice guidelines, and instructional videos. Our target is to eliminate preventable combat death by providing the right training and right tools to be applied by the right people at the right time. Until next time, stay safe and continue saving lives on the battlefield.